This is an ABC podcast. You've either forgotten one or the one you have isn't strong enough or the one you have you just use for way too many things. Yes, this week on Download This Show, we are talking about passwords. Is the age of the password over? All hail the pass key. But exactly what is that? Also on the program, why artificial intelligence has gotten Amnesty International of all groups into trouble and how the biggest tech companies in the world, your Apples and your Googles, are actually teaming together to stop a very specific kind of abuse and harassment. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, freelance technology journalist, and if you haven't already, you should subscribe to her Substack, Alice Clark. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thank you for having me. Subscribe to Substack. It's called Press Any Button. It's very good. It is. Uh, also on the show this week, a CEO of Girl Geek Academy, Sarah Moran. Welcome back. Great to be back. And RIP password, long live the pass key. Alice, what's, what is, firstly, what is the difference between a password and pass key and what's happened this week? So a, the difference between a password and a pass key is a password is some letters that you type into a little box that tells the computer to trust you, whereas a pass key is kind of like... Your device says, hey, it's cool, she's with us, and then lets you log in. A password is much easier for computers and other people to guess, whereas a passkey has to be physically on your device. Um, this, it's made news this week because Apple, Google, and Microsoft have come together to uh, kind of move us in the direction of passkeys. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So Google is the latest one to come forward and say, hey, we're using passkeys on all Google logins, which is basically most logins that people use. So now passkeys are officially the future. So Sarah, if I were to move from password to passkey, how would my life change today? Well, today I actually did this myself, so I can tell you how much my life has changed. It's really great. You basically, you know, go to your browser and it just says, would you like to use a passkey for this? okay. And I just pop my finger on my laptop and then I'm in. And for me, I have many, many email accounts. Is it because of your fake life that you maintain multiple different families around the world? Absolutely. I can't wait till you find them all. But yeah, it's, you know, we're constantly trying to think of new passwords, trying to remember them or even better, keeping them, you know, somewhere safe. But that gets really frustrating. And I, I am the queen of, I will just reset the password by sending a new one to my email via forget, forgot my password. (laughs) Um, So this is a game changer for me. Hence why I tried it this morning. What is interesting is that, you know, you set it up for your email on your phone or on your computer. Um, and then if you want to log into a different computer with that, um, we're looking at potentially being able to scan via a QR code with my phone that has my fingerprint attached, and that will also help me log into a new device. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Death to the password. I'm a little disappointed to say goodbye to Princess123, exclamation <laughs> mark. You know, that password got me through a lot, you know, at least through most of the 2010s. All right, And any it. that it hasn't, I am very looking forward to going and hacking that after this program. <laughs> So are there limitations to this technology that, that Alice people should be aware of? Because, I mean, the password is, you know, give credit where it's due. It has been a, a tool we've used for a long time. 
Yeah, it's going to take a while for some smaller sites and some of the more random places on the internet to adopt passkeys. It also means that if someone steals your phone and works out how to get into it, which guessing your pin is probably your birthday is not that hard, that is going to create more problems for you. It also is going to be a big problem for people who don't actually own their own device and rely on public computers like library computers or school computers because automatically their accounts are going to be less secure than those who have their own phones, creating a two t- like two tiers of security and people who have the least amount to lose will be the easiest to take from. So that's not great. I was recently in Samoa and most people don't have a device that has, you know, the bio crypto awesome thing that will enable pass keys for them. And so this really is something that those that can afford to use this technology will have first access to. But where I also um, am hearing that it is something that will be problematic, but people are working it through, is for the enterprise. So if you think mm. about the fact that at the moment, this is open to anyone with their personal Gmail account. I used it this morning. But then if you're at work, thinking about the security of that, this practice is actually more secure, but working out how we turn it on and off in between our personal and work lives is something that people are figuring out how to do at the moment. The accessibility issues that were raised earlier, do you think it's a solvable problem, Alice? Look, the thing I always come back to is like passwords, whilst deeply imperfect in many ways, shapes or forms, they have kind of worked for a long time in many ways. And I think maybe because of its sort of everybody can kind of do it. I just wonder if, hmm. if, if you can surmount that with this new technology. One way would be distributing things like uh, the YubiKey, which is like a physical USB that you can use to store all, not really a USB, kind of like a key thing that stores all your passwords on it that then tells the device to trust it. That might be a cheaper and more accessible thing than getting a whole phone. But as it stands now, passkeys really do rely on you having a device or some kind of object that is just yours that knows who you are and that you trust. And that's going to be difficult to get around without making a smaller device that knows who you are and that you can trust. Sarah, are there limitations that you'd like people to be aware of? Well, I was going to go the other way, which is just about, you know, there's buttons that say, oh, I don't want to use my passkey, and you go back to using a password. So we're not going to be removing passwords altogether. If anything, at the moment, I see this as like a shortcut, you know, it's uh, this is the quick way to get in if you have your passkeys set up. If you don't, you'll just keep going the way that things are and just keep using your password as it is for the next foreseeable future. I, for some reason, we made it so that you have to have your passwords be a random string of numbers and letters, which is really hard for humans to remember and really easy for computers to guess. And that seems like a major mistake we made somewhere along the way. So I'm really glad that passkeys are becoming a thing to get rid of that because that was dumb. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And Sarah, the non-government organisation Amnesty International which is not a group we often talk about here on Download This Show, is in some kind of hot water over the use of an AI-generated image. Tell me more. Yeah, so they were producing a report reflecting on Columbia's 2021 protests and instead of using an image, a real image, they used an AI-created image for that report. Now, it was labelled, they did say, this is this is created by AI, but when you looked into it, things just, like, weren't quite right. So, for example, the faces of the protesters and, you know, they kind of had that warped, oil-look, slicked appearance and it just wasn't, you know, you could tell it wasn't a real image and they have been quite slammed for doing that. Why slam, Sarah? Like, what, what 
was the problem that was pointed out with that? I think there's a couple of different problems. You know, this is a report that's reflecting an event that actually did happen. There were real photos, but also the brand of Amnesty is reporting the truth of of horrific things that happened. I think there is a little bit of a, you know, something that didn't make people feel good about literally glossing over that and, and recreating that truth in a visual way. Do you think the criticism stacks up, Alice? Yeah, I really do. AI is going to be used to fake all kinds of things about protests and brutality on all sides. The best way to fight back at that is with the truth. So starting out by saying, hey, yeah, we're going to use AI photos in our reports, already either starts to teach some people that, hey, maybe AI is fine, and other people, hey, maybe you don't trust this organisation. At the same time, there is no such thing as ethical AI at the moment. AI is trained on other people's photos and work, and almost no one has been compensated for that. If they wanted to have an image that didn't put somebody in danger because they said they used it to protect the protester, hire a painter to paint an image that is quite obviously not real and not trying to be a photo, but still represents one of the photos taken at the protest. Like There are ways around it that would have been better for everyone. How have um, have Amnesty responded, Sarah? Well, you know, they've come out and said, you know, we've removed the images as we don't want criticism for the use of AI-generated images to distract from their core message supporting victims and their calls for justice. But, you know, the, the, the damage in many ways has been done. Like, this has really slammed their credibility. To what Alice was saying, you know, 38 people died, uh, civilians died in, in those protests. And so the reason that was given for using them in the first place was to protect the identity of anyone who appears in that against any further harm. But many people are coming out and saying, okay, but there's more than one way to do that. You know, there are many options that Amnesty have available to them and they are quite a large organisation. You know, they have budget to be able to do this work properly. There is, I guess, one thing that that did stand out to me when I kind of saw this story, which is that events like this are sort of crucial for lifting our sort of critical literacy of images. I think events like this, I think, are are kind of important to remind people that actually a lot of the images you're looking at may be, you know, generated or, you know, deep fakes and things like that. And I I sort of wonder, is it possible that you can kind of take an event like this, Alice, and turn it into a a teachable moment for media literacy? Or is that just me being a bit Pollyanna-ish? You can take it as a moment for media literacy. Like, if you look at the photo, you're like, obviously something is wrong. I don't think a human mouth looks like that. Why is everyone wearing a slightly different uniform? Why are all the colours in the wrong order? But at the same time, every time you point out these obvious mistakes, somebody makes the AI a little bit better so they become less obvious. So right now it's a good teachable moment to say, hey, here are some of the things that you can look for that make an AI image wrong. But we're also telling the people behind AI what makes that image wrong and then they will fix that and then we have a whole new teachable moment. It's interesting the choice to use that style of imagery to represent the report. Like, so the tools available within AI, you could do, you know, in in the style of Salvador Dali, you could do so many different ways to portray something that is happening that wouldn't be realistic to photography. The choice of Amnesty to do this, I think, you know, to your point about a teachable moment, it is something that hopefully we realise is not okay when we're trying to convey serious messages about truth that really happened.
Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And if you happen to have an AirTag, the thing where you can kind of put it on your devices and you can keep track of, you know, whether they've lost your luggage on a plane. Uh, what you may or may not be aware of is there's a problem with AirTags being used as a tool of stalking. And now some of the biggest tech companies in the world have come together to concoct a sort of plan for how to stop or interrupt that process. Alice, walk me through what's happened. Apple has known for a long time that AirTags could be used as tools for stalking or abuse, which is why on iPhones you get an alert probably about half an hour I get it every time I accidentally take my wife's keys to say, hey, there's an AirTag that's been with you, here's all the places it's like it's been with you, here is what that person's been able to see. Do you want to find that so you can disable it? Which is great if you have an iPhone, but if you have an Android phone, you only currently or only did at the time of release, get that alert about three days after you've been with that AirTag, which is possibly a bit late. So now Apple and Google are teaming up to kind of alert people if there is an AirTag with them. Will it work, Sarah? People who want to stalk other people are very determined. This is one tool in the toolkit of people who want to harm others. It is a step in the right direction for curbing this kind of behaviour, but I think this is something that needs to be an always-on concern for technology companies. What I'm really appreciative of is that this is something where they're coming out and saying, this is the reason we're doing this. We are doing this to protect our users. We're doing this to show our support for people experiencing you know, domestic and family violence and stalking and other sorts of harm. Whether or not it will work for everyone all the time, I will re- maintain my scepticism as I do with all technology companies who you know, do have the ability to cause harm to others. But I think what is great is that it is sending the message that, A, this isn't okay. This is not an okay use of our technology. We're coming together to do something about it. And you know, this is something that we care about. And I'm very appreciative of that. Is there more that can be done, Alice? Yes and no. Taking a step back, all smart and connected devices can be used for abuse. Like, abusers can now get phone alerts when their partner or child opens a door in the home or opens the fridge, does anything. There are so many smart home devices that can be used to completely control every single aspect of someone's life if you wanted to. Like, for me, it's really cute and funny if I turn on my side of the electric blanket when I'm on the other side of the world to kind of... remind my wife that I could have been there and it would be nice if my side of the bed was warm because I know she's going to roll over that side anyway. Okay, that is adorable and I love it. I just I just need to say it. That is actually delightful and you're I like you're like a romantic genius. Carry on. Well, thank you. But also at the same time, if I was a horrible person, me doing that same thing could have a completely different consequence and message. Yeah. Like even like robot vacuum cleaners now have cameras that you can activate from anywhere in the world and turn on and get it to walk around your house and you can talk to other people on the other side of that, which again is cute when you're in Sydney and you want to see what your wife is baking, but is not cute if you're a horribly abusive person and want to make sure your wife is exactly where she said she is and you can make sure she's doing all those things. So there are ways that all of these things can be abused and used horribly. And I do not think tech companies are doing enough to mitigate that abuse. I think they should be working more closely with domestic violence charities and other experts to find ways to mitigate that. On the other hand, I was in Singapore last month and was walking around with some colleagues and they kept getting alerts that my AirPods were with them because I was also with them. And every night I live in an apartment and every morning I wake up and I get alerts about 
apparently where my phone and all the other air tags in the building have wandered off to in the middle of the night because of GPS drift. And I'm now so used to all of these alerts that I ignore them. There is a problem where if you have too many notifications, the notifications stop having any kind of meaning, and so people do not heed that warning. And so it is really hard to find that balance. I do not know how you solve this problem. A lot of what you were describing earlier with your wife is sort of part of the intimacy of your relationship. Uh, But if the intention behind it were any different, it could very easily be seen as intimidating. And I wonder, like, how do we expect technology companies to kind of interpret that, right? Because a lot of what you're talking about is sort of, it, it exists in the emotional realm as opposed to necessarily what exists in the in the technical realm. So at what point do we kind of limit the responsibility of tech companies? At what point do we ask them to actually interpret when something becomes intimidating? It's kind of like porn. You know it when you see it. I don't think people need to be able to get alerts when their fridge door is open. I think limiting slightly the amount of information that smart devices send and the frequency that they send it would be helpful. But I, I, I don't think there's an easy answer to this. I don't think there even necessarily is any kind of answer to this. And I'm really hoping that there is some incredibly smart academic who figures it out at some point and then solves all of our problems. <laughs> but <laughs> there's too many <laughs> variables. Like, it's impossible. Love, at Girl Geek Academy, we think deeply about these things. Um, and I think what what we have realised is that technology you know, does the most good for the most people um, in a way that makes our lives slightly easier and, you know, we have happy days with our hot blankets and all of those things. Um, But when you are the recipient of harm, there is no emergency parachute. There is no way to indicate to a company that controls the technology that I need out. I need I need this disconnected because, you know, all the tendrils have snuck into every bit of our lives um, through those romantic and intimate moments um, that are now about to cause us harm. And I think being able to have an emergency stop button or some way to disconnect in a way that also doesn't alert that partner um, because there needs to be ways to safely evacuate in the same way that we do in a physical space, right? Like when we are... Um, Get, encouraging someone to leave an abusive relationship, that needs to be done safely. Um, it, it is something that, you know, experts far more um, experienced than I uh, have methods and procedures, but those methods and procedures haven't carried over to the digital world and haven't enabled us to be able to say, all right, enough's enough. I actually need you to safely get me out of this situation. Unfortunately, it happens to such a high volume of people that there is actually a use case for this. You know, it's not just some, oh, this happened once to some person. This happens daily. We know that, you know, uh, at least one woman a week dies at the hands of an intimate partner in Australia, and that's just Australia, and that's, you know, just when it gets to the worst outcome. So being able to look at this and um, being able to address this, you know, from a from a case study perspective, I think will make technology better for everybody um, before it, it gets to the worst outcome. Mm. The problem with that, though, is that you would need to work out how that get me out of here button is applied and how it's unlocked, because most of these smart home devices are smart security stuff. And if there is a a button that says, turn off all the security for an hour so I can escape, that can presumably also be used by the kind of people you're trying to keep out of your house to not get robbed. So... (laughs) which I I agree, there should be buttons of, hey, stop doing all these things, I need to get out. But the way that that is implemented would be 
really, really challenging to not then undo all the security benefits for people who are not in these situations. It's, it's really hard, and I hate that about it. It should be easier, but it's not, and I hate that. But that at least, bad. like, with the, you know, with this particular um, movement, you know, you've got three, at least three technology companies coming together to say, all right, but we're going to try. And I think that mm. that's something that, um, you know, if they keep trying, uh, then hopefully it may not be the perfect outcome, but at least things are better than nothing. Oh, absolutely. They should definitely be commended for trying. I think that is fantastic. I really look forward to seeing how it's implemented and if they manage to do it in a way that doesn't undermine it at the same time with too many notifications. It'll be interesting. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And one of the loudest voices in the world of AI uh, quit Google this week, Alice. Why and who? So Jeffrey Hinton has quit Google and called himself the godfather of AI and said that AI is getting quite scary. Wait, hey, wait, he called himself the godfather of AI? No, I, no, come on, he didn't. I have no evidence that he personally called himself the godfather of AI. I just find it very interesting that suddenly every single article about him called him the godfather of AI. So either he called him that or a publicist called him that. What exactly did he do, Alice? He pioneered a bunch of uh, research into neural networks. He worked in Google's AI department for about 10 years. He knows a lot about AI, and now he is saying that it's getting too scary because AI might get smarter than us and might be used by bad actors to do bad things. Also 75 and perfectly good time to retire. Yep. What do you make of his uh, his warnings, Sarah? The timing of these warnings is very convenient for a man who is out the door. It, it is interesting that the way that he has framed it is that he is leaving Google so that he can make criticisms of everybody in a way that doesn't just make Google bad. So people don't say, oh, this is what Google's up to. It's creating for him a, a type of independence. He says he actually also wants to say some good things about Google and that it's also more credible if he doesn't work for them. So it is creating this delineation to say, I don't work for any of them anymore. I can say what I like. However, I would strongly question that independence given that he is, as we say, the godfather of AI. Not to be cynical. I would, I'd never be cynical. No, definitely not. But if I wanted to move to a really lucrative speaking circuit, for example, <laughs> and perhaps then hired a publicist to brand me as the godfather of a popular new technology a lot of people don't understand, I would then do a bunch of interviews saying how the technology that I pioneered is far too powerful. I think that would be a really good way to raise the price that I could get on a speaking tour. Not saying that's what he's doing, but that's just what I would do. True or not, does he have a point, Alice? Uh, not currently. AI's really good if you want to make up a bunch of fake quotes and make librarians get really stressed about trying to hunt down a bunch of really fake references. I discovered last night that Bing can write half-decent Draco Malfoy and Harry Potter fan fiction when you ask it any question about fan fiction and not give it any ship. That was weird. But as it stands now, no, AI is not too powerful. Yes, it can absolutely be used by bad people and possibly in 10 years with a lot of work on it, it could become quite powerful. But in its current state, not really. Do you think his, uh, his concerns have any merit, uh, Sarah? Well, he said, you know, some of these warnings include things like there may be bad actors who would use AI for bad things. Now, 
if that is correct, <laughs> then shouldn't you have thought of that in your 25-year career building the stuff? You know, I find it very interesting that people build technology and then tack ethics on to the end. Yeah, I, I really struggle with this, actually. I think that if everyone could think about technology before they build it and actually think about a plan for how we're going to, how it's going to roll out in the world rather than, oh, hang on, we might have gone too far. Can we back this train up a bit? Yeah, I think, <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> hmm. yeah, I agree. There are a lot of really big ethical quandaries. I just don't think ChatGPT is about to become smarter than humans or gain sentience. I'm interested in the idea of, of ethics not being at the end of a process but sort of being kind of woven in throughout. Are there things that you can see right now, Sarah, in the world of AI, so, you know, you've got your, your image-based things like mid-journey, you've got ChatGPT, the sort of the language model where you can talk to it. If you were looking at those there, what are the sort of ethical things, ethical choices, ethical guidelines perhaps you would have put over those things in development that you feel like are missing at the moment? Yeah, so um, I was in Samoa last week and I was teaching AI to high school girls. So we were getting it out, having a go. Um, we used an image-based AI and I said, oh, can you create a room full of, you know, Samoan girls using computers with AI? And it was flat out racist. Like it just, you know, I said, is this Samoan girls? They weren't. They were generically Asian looking girls. Um, and so a lot of this stuff is being baked in. This is what's being reflected back to users. Um, and it's just, it's just, you know, being let run rife from the get-go. Other examples include, you know, manipulation of voice. We're already seeing that people are being targeted by scammers saying, you know, it only takes three seconds of voice to be able to create, to build out more of a conversation with someone's voice. Well, people are being targeted and, you know, someone doing a prank call saying, it's your daughter, I'm stuck, send me money. You know, these things are already happening. Um, the same with, uh, you know, a lot of video manipulation. And I think we're going to need media literacy on a massive scale to understand this is what AI can do, is doing, and how you can be hurt by it. But ethics hasn't, you know, stepped into it. And it could be that we're moving so quickly. But you can rest assured that those bad actors and criminals and anyone else are like, you ripper, thanks for creating these new tools that we can now go ahead and use. So when you're working with the next generation of coders, right, they're, they're in your hands right now. Mm. What are you telling them that they should be doing early to kind of demonstrate their ethics before they go off and build the next Facebooks, the next uh, ChatGPT? What are you telling them that they, they should be doing and they should be thinking about before they build the next thing? Yeah, unfortunately, the technical courses to be able to teach young people are all available and there's barely nothing out there to be able to teach them ethics. So we, we use our expertise as much as possible, but we think, you know, what what is, we make them dream, you know, what is the most dystopian scenario that you come up with using this? And then how do we build things in that mitigate that possible use? Um, the main thing for me is making sure that young girls are involved in building this technology in the first place because they're the ones who are going to be able to say, this is how this could harm me. Uh, this is how, you know, my experience could be affected by a negative use of this material. And if women aren't included in building that or, you know, anyone from a diverse background isn't included in building those things from the start, then, of course, you know, we, we end up in a situation where their concerns and the problems that they may face um, are not included in the ethical frameworks of, of how to build that. So for me, I tell all young people, like, pick up the tools and start using them. Otherwise, you'll be a consumer and you won't be able to create solutions to the problem that, 
the problems that arise from these technologies. And with that, we are out of time. A very big thank you to the uh, the godparents of this episode of Download the Show, uh, uh, Sarah Moran, CEO of Girl Geek Academy. Thank you for coming back on the program. So great to be here. And Alice Clark, freelance technology journalist. And don't forget, her Substack is Press Any Button. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. The pleasure was entirely mine. Uh, If you enjoyed the program, make sure you leave a review, share it with your friends, put it on social media, whatever feels right to you. Uh, It's just called Download This Show, just in case you're wondering what you're listening to. My name is Mark Fennell, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.